Hi, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. Today's guest is journalist and author Rachel Zimmerman. And as I get older, so do my friendships. And Rachel and I go back to first grade, which makes our friendship like 53 years old, which is just frightening. <laughs> um, anyway, Rachel and I reconnected after her husband died because we were both writing about grief. Um, and Rachel is an expert on health issues and has been reporting on health and healthcare, um, the healthcare system for like 25 years. She's currently a health writer for the Washington Post, but she's contributed to many other news organizations over the years. She co-wrote a book with Dr. Annie Brewster called The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss. And she has a memoir coming out about grieving and raising her kids in the aftermath of losing her husband to suicide. So welcome, Rachel, and thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, so I just wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your first husband, Seth. I had the pleasure of briefly meeting him once, and he made quite an impression. He seemed to have the energy and enthusiasm of like a classroom of first graders, speaking of first grade. Yes, that's true. He did have a lot of energy and he kind of preferred being with kids to adults, frankly, um, and really did channel their energy. Uh, he was a robotics professor at MIT. Uh, he had been teaching and researching there for 20 years. He was never diagnosed with a serious mental illness. He had, you know, he was moody. He was brilliant. He had his highs and lows. Um, so his suicide kind of came out of the blue mm. for us. Yeah. Of course, it's been nine years. And when you think back, you start seeing signs that you didn't see at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, he was really devoted to our kids. Uh, they were eight and 11 when he died. We have two daughters, Sophia and Julia. Mm -hmm. And he was super close with them and, you know, hung out in their classroom at drop off. And I remember once uh, another mother who had seen him for a couple of days in a row, hanging out in the kids' classrooms. And she asked me one time, does your husband have a real job? <laughs> like, because he was there so much. Um, wow. But he was, you know, he was very close with his family, his parents and his two brothers. And we were married for 12 years before he died. Mm. Um, we met when we were older and had our careers kind of settled. We met when we were 35. And actually, I was 38 and then 41 when my kids were born. So, but yeah, so his suicide just like it was really a shock and out of the blue and a disaster for my kids. Mm. But the memoir that you mentioned is kind of about. It starts at the moment of his death, but it's really about sort of rebuilding our lives after after that. Mm. No, I I I was lucky enough to read that opening, and um, I was really struck by the way that some of your first thoughts when you found out about Seth's um, death were about your kids. So, can you just take us through a little bit about that? Like, what went through your mind in those first moments of learning that he died? Yeah, um, I got the news uh, from a state trooper who came to my house and told me Seth had died. And um, it's true. My first thoughts were about the girls. And I was screaming, the girls, the girls, in my front stoop. And um, all the neighbors were coming out wondering what was going on. But I don't know why that's where my brain went. Um, but it very memorably went there. And, you know, as I said, I was older when I had them and my, you know, I sort of established my career. And by that time I was working part-time as a public radio reporter and I was just really devoted to being a mom then. And it was just like, the whole thing was inconceivable. And, mm. but when I thought of the kids, I was just like, oh my God, how is this going to impact them? Like, and I just thought they were doomed. 
I mean, I literally thought their childhoods are over and they're doomed because who gets over this kind of thing, mm. you know? And um, I think we've had conversations about like all death, death is death, you know, but within deaths, there are sort of iterations of horribleness and suicide is just mm. one of those deaths that like you just it's hard to wrap your brain around suicide like our all of our human instincts are to stay alive and then when somebody takes their own life it's just like it's really really hard to understand even if you know about depression and know about like going into a dark place the idea of a suicide when you you know it's just very difficult to understand and i just thought like my kids were so close to their dad and he was just their hero and i you know i just thought like how do we go on mm. i mean i think about how any death for a kid is so hard for them to get their head around because they're just so young it's so out of their realm of possibility you know they they don't think that that could happen or anything like that could happen so for that to happen it's like they really have to their whole understanding of the world and what reality has to really change right. dramatically um but even worse when it's a sudden death and i would imagine even worse when that death is is, is by suicide right and um, i spent i spent a lot of time you know trying to convey the message that you know his brain was broken and just like if somebody has a heart attack mm. it's not like they died because they didn't love you or because you did anything wrong. Like right. he didn't abandon us. He was sick. He had an illness. Right. And you know that I do believe that, but yet, you know, I, it was weird because at first, like, even when I knew it was suicide, I sort of started, like, I started thinking it was an accident and maybe he like drove his car and, had it you know had an accident and like was driving on memorial drive and hit a guardrail and went into the charles river and mm. um you know and i remember thinking like i wish it was an accident i wish it was an accident mm. just because that would have been so much simpler to explain yeah um and you know i'm not proud of this but like i would hear about people who died of cancer and think like that's a better death and mm. I know it's not, but mm. like your human yeah. comparison instinct goes, yeah, wow, that you can understand, you can say goodbye, right? You know, and and that became a, actually a big thing for particularly my younger daughter. Like goodbyes were very charged, and mm. even still, so now my kids are seventeen and twenty, and and even now. Um, when somebody doesn't say goodbye, she gets very, very upset, mm. like more than the usual. Oh, sure. they didn't say goodbye. But she's like, why didn't they say goodbye? What is, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're right about it just being metabolized by kids in such different ways than adults. Yeah. That I had no idea about then, you know? Sure. It's kind of one of those things that you, learn as you go right on the job training exactly <laughs> there's exactly. no there's no manual for that um right. but the, just in that comparison to when you lose a parent by like terminal illness like cancer you know parents usually have time to discuss like how much information they're going to share with the kids and obviously you didn't have any time to think about that so i'm just wondering like in the aftermath how did you think about sharing information about the circumstances of his death with them i mean was it kind of instinctual or did you reach out to people for advice how did you go about that yeah so he died on july 1st 2014 it was a tuesday and I had dropped my kids off for their second day of summer day camp that morning. And I learned of his death at about like 1130, around 1130, 12 that day. And I had to pick them up at three. Mm. And so I was just like, what do I tell them? I need a script. Like, I have just no idea how to convey this news to right. these kids. 
So um, at the time, I was writing a health blog for the public radio station here in Boston. And my writing partner, you know, I called her and I was like, who can I talk to right away? I need an expert. I need a script. And she connected me with this amazing psychiatrist at um, Massachusetts General Hospital. Her name's Paula Rausch. And she typically deals with uh, families who have a cancer diagnosis and how do you talk about a cancer diagnosis with a kid? But she called me and I said, I've got three hours, I have two kids, my husband's dead, I have no idea what to say, what do I say? Mm. And she just went through it with me. Um, you know, she was like, tell them the truth, you don't have to tell them every single detail, tell them you're, you're fine and it's, sucks right now but you guys are going to get through mm. um it wasn't like there was nothing anybody could do and just reiterate that you are there for them you are there for them mm. and just repeat that and but don't lie like emphatically don't lie mm -hmm. and so that's kind of what i did that first so i picked them up we went over to their favorite burrito place which was right next door to the camp and we sat at a table and I told them, you know, I said, if some really terrible, terrible news, mm. dad died. And like, there was silence that I couldn't take. And so I started saying like, we don't know that much about it. We're getting details, you know, just filling in the silence. And then they didn't respond immediately. And so then I said it again and, um, I have this in my book. So mm. Julia, the younger one, she was eight. She stood up on the chair and she, she said, I'm not even double digits yet. Like, mm. so that's where her mind went. Like right. who would say something like that? Right. Like an edit, my editor was like, are you sure she said that? That's <laughs> not like what a normal kid would say. I'm like, it's totally normal. It's totally normal. Yeah, that's like you think you're about so yourself. Centric. Yeah, you're so exactly egocentric exactly. at that age. Yeah. Yeah. And, and her first my thought, older daughter. Sorry. sorry. What? And her also just that her first thought was about her age. I mean, I think in a way that's so prophetic, like she's understanding that her age at this point was important, you know, yes. how yes. it was going to impact yes, yes, her yes. was very important. And I, I think it's kind of amazing that she thought of that first. Yeah. Yeah. And then my older daughter who was 11 just said, no, she was like crying and saying no. So that was the first day. Um, mm. And then, you know, we drove, I had driven to pick them up with my mother mm -hmm. and their longtime babysitter who had been caring for them well, since Julia was born and since Sophia was two. Mm. And I knew that I wouldn't, it would be hard for me to drive home. And so Maria, God, she was a saint, mm. actually. Mm. Um, she was I, I started thinking about her as my babysitter because <laughs> she was so amazing and like stayed with me. And anyway, mm -hmm. um, she drove us home. And by that time, there were tons of people in my house. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was sort of the MO for the next period of time, like sure. a ton of people in the house, people around them. So I didn't need to do a lot of explaining in that initial period when we were just in shock yeah. um it was just sort of the reality sinking in yeah and then you know i ex i said it was suicide but I, and then i started explaining about it's an illness in your brain and the you know the symptoms of this illness are you hurt you some of the symptoms could be that you want to hurt yourself and it's a terrible illness and it had nothing to do with how you know, how much he loved you and how much he loved us and mm. et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so then I, I, I was able to, my mother has a little cottage, um, on Cape Cod and I took the summer off and took my kids there and sort of like sequestered us there for the summer and didn't really, you know, I answered any questions they had, but they didn't at that point have a lot of questions. Mm. They were just kind of, I think we were just in shock for the first three months, oh, two months. Yeah. That's so, that's just so beautiful that you were able to do that, to just have that time yeah. alone with them. Yeah. Um, do you remember much about that time? Yes. I mean, basically 
I would walk away from the house and like, you know, just call experts all day and say like, you know, do I need them to be in therapy? Should I force them to be in therapy if they don't want to be in therapy? Like, mm. you know, should I be making them read certain things or connect with certain friends or should they go to day camp? Should they like, mm -hmm. I was just spinning with experts yeah. and away from like, so nobody could hear me. And then when I went, you know, then I'd go back to the house and the only thing, the only rule I had was we went for a swim pretty much every day. Mm. That was the only thing that I made them do. And if they really didn't want to, I, but I just like was kind of like, we're going in the water today and then you can do whatever you want. And I, I did, I let them watch as much, t you know, as much TV. There was no screen time rule. Yeah. Um, my older daughter actually just read a lot. She read like 40 books that summer. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. And later I was like, what was like, you've never read so many books. And she, you know, it was a lot of, a lot about just distraction and blocking those other thoughts, the darker mm. thoughts from her brain. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and my mother tried to be helpful, but I rejected her help. Like I was a very bad house guest that summer. Just <laughs> she could do nothing right. Like, mm. should I make the kids some eggs? And I'd be like, no, why eggs? You know, like I just, it was, I was, I took a lot out on her cause mm. she was there and I couldn't take it out on them. And, mm. um, and I, you know, that was just really hard. Like I was taking Ativan every night to sleep and I couldn't really read or focus it was just sort of slogging along through the days, mm. but we were in a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And I think the going into cold water every day, like that in itself was therapeutic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then we had to go home in the fall and I did sit them down before school. And I was like, you know, we talked about suicide, but do you really know what it is? Because other people might say something to you mm. and you need to understand this. And that was like a very tense conversation because, well, what was interesting was that I really, at the beginning, wanted to give them both equal information at the same time. Like what, what the younger one knew, I wanted the older one to know. Like I didn't want one to have, but in reality, they were at completely different stages. And so that conversation in particular, you know, Julie was like, yes, I understand suicide. Yes, I understand that I can talk about it or not as I wish. But my older daughter was just like, I can't deal with this. She stormed out of the mm. house, you mm. know, like what grade was it was too much. I what mean, grades she, were they she going was into? going. Yeah. Julia was going into third and Sophia was going into fifth. Okay. So, um, yeah, I developmentally yeah. very, and different. I would imagine third graders wouldn't really have much interest in talking about suicide, but fifth graders might in terms of her classmates. Yeah. I mean, none of them really did actually. Yeah. Um, Good. a few, like there were, there was a boy in third grade who Seth had connected with and he was like, where's your dad? That was awkward. Mm. And, um, mm. Later in the year, a friend of Sophia's had talked about being depressed and it sca really scared her. Like she talked about having depression. Um, but mostly they wanted to just be normal. You know, mostly they just wanted to not be like the freak kids who had this father who died. Like, yeah. of course. Yeah. And so back to your question of like what information you know, I told them pretty much everything. Well, I told them sort of everything ab about suicide and, you know, I, so he had left a note and the note was really painful to me because as I said, my whole messaging was he had an illness in his brain and it had nothing to do with you guys. But the fact that he wrote a note mm. um, that was sort of coherent undermined my message. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. if he was, if he, if his, if he had a breakdown, how could he write like a note that you could understand? Right. You know? Right. So the note just like stuck in my throat, and I actually didn't. It took me 
years to actually tell them about the note, mm. which when I did tell them, um, Julie was like, why you should have told us sooner. Mm -hmm. And Sophia was like, I understand. And, you know, we never, they never asked if there was a, like, I justified it by kind of like, they never asked. And mm -hmm. I remember going to see, um, the show, Dear Evan Hansen yeah, in New York. Right. Um, and the whole thing's about a misinterpreted suicide note. And I'm sitting there thinking, they're going to ask me, like, I better come up with an answer, like how I'm going to frame this because this whole play is about a suicide note. And then they didn't. So mm. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, in my mind, I was kind of, well, I'm not lying to them. I'm just sort of stretching the time before I tell them the full truth, yeah. you know, like yeah. rationalizing. Yeah. Um, so, but I did tell them and then I had said to them, like, if you want any details, ask me and, you know, sort of putting it on them. Mm -hmm. And it also took about a year. So Julia, after about a year was like, how did daddy die? How did daddy die? Mm. And finally I couldn't, you know, Sophia didn't want to be in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, um, so he jumped off a bridge mm. fairly close to our home. Mm. And so Julia was asking and asking. And finally, I just, you know, when Sophia wasn't around, um, said, this is how he died. I, you know, I said, I imagine like he felt like maybe he was flying for a minute because he always talked about how he wished he could fly. Mm. And she was like, well if he parked his car on the bridge, why didn't someone stop him? Like she has a very rational yeah. mind. And, you know, it was a very, very tough moment. And then right after that, I called Sophia in and I was like, Julia had asked to know how dad died. I told her, I don't know if you know, but she knows now mm -hmm. and you have to support her if she ever wants to talk about it. And Sophia was like, I understand. Because mm. Sophia was, I think, I never really knew what Sophia knew because um, I never pushed her about it. Yep. And she seemed not to want to know details. Like she wanted to know the contours of it, but not the details. It was too much, I think. And was there, was there any information about his death that was in the community? Like, could, were you concerned about her finding out details from other people or, you know, from the news or anything like that? So when he first died, weirdly, considering I was a reporter and I wrote a blog where there was a lot of first person reporting in our blog. Like I wrote about, mm -hmm. you know, having pelvic floor physical therapy when like I was having pain <laughs> during sex. Like it wasn't, I was out there, but for right. the, yeah, I was out personal. there and personal. But for this, I was just like, I want no details out there. So you know, MIT was going to put out a press release and I was like, don't put the cause of death. And the Boston Globe wanted to do a profile and I got my friend to stop it. Mm. And, you know, I was insanely focused on controlling the narrative. Mm. Um, and in retrospect, I just think that was about I had lost control and this was a small thing I could claim control over. But um, I mean, even to the point of, so we had a memorial service for him about a, a few days after he died in the MIT chapel and Julia sang Adele's Someone Like You. Mm -hmm. And it was like this incredible, I mean, she was this little tiny eight-year-old and her hair was like in a big, like curly crown around her head. And she was amazing. And I refused to let anyone record that memorial, which I totally regret because mm. I really would have liked to have had that. But I, I just didn't want any recording. I didn't want any documentation. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was kind of this compulsive thing. So if they did search, they would have found out that he died by suicide, but there was very little detail out there. Right. At that yeah. point, you hadn't used the word suicide yet. Oh, yeah, I had used the word, but I didn't okay. like, oh, yeah, they knew it was a suicide by then, okay. but okay. nobody was really talking about it like that with them. 
Right, you know? right, right, right. It wasn't in the general um, It wasn't in the general yeah. conversation. As a, yeah. as a friend, I mean, I was there at that service. It was beautiful. And I, yeah, remember, her perf- I remember her performance vividly. <laughs> but, um, and I remember there being, yeah, not a lot of information about how he died. Like I didn't, I wasn't clear about it. So I think huh. that's, that worked. Um, <laughs> And, and I think it's kind of amazing that you did that. Like, I, I can understand your um, perspective on it as feeling kind of compulsive, but to me, it sounds like just so protective, you know, like you were just really out to protect your kids from information that could come at them from different people and might be delivered in a way that didn't feel good to them. I mean, I just think that's so important around around a death like that to try to control the negative narrative. I think that's actually shows just so much forethought. I feel like your instincts around how to kind of navigate that those stormy waters after his death um, were so strong and sort of sort of spot on. That's just the way it looked to me for, as an outsider. I mean, it was all about protecting them after I felt like I failed to protect them in the most profound way. You know, I, Mm. I really felt, um, it's interesting because, you know, of course I felt like, what could I have done? Like I should have seen signs of his depression. I should have done this and this and this, but what I, but what I really felt intensely at the beginning was how could I have, how could I have failed? to protect my kids from this. Mm. Like weirdly it was about them, not, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and even still, like I, I, you know, at big sort of milestone moments, I, I've said to them, like, I'm so sorry that I couldn't protect you from this. And, mm. you know, recently when my 20 year old went off to college, um, couple years ago I was like I'm really I'm it's just I'm still so sorry that I couldn't protect you from this and she said you know like at this point this is part of who I am and you know it's so baked into my constitution like you don't have to say you're sorry like this is part of me you know Mm. so um yeah yeah that's like music to my ears I hope it was music to your ears too. Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, yeah, you know, that really leads to um, a couple of questions I have because you have always been really close to your kids. Um, But I imagine that like there must have been a period of sadness for you that was pretty overwhelming. And I'm just wondering, were you careful to sort of try and shield your kids from that? Or were you, was it impossible to do that? Like, how much were you trying to kind of protect them, not just from what had happened, but from your own response to what had right. happened? Right. I think, again, there was sort of an intuitive thing of, you know, I have to show them that I'm okay, that like their entire world isn't going to crumble right now. Right. And so there was a fair amount of, you know, waiting till they were asleep to just call a girlfriend and be like, what the fuck am I going to do? You know, so there was a lot of like nighttime venting. Um, And Mm. I tried not to just like break down and lose it in front of them. Mm. Not that I always succeeded. I mean, yeah, but I yes, I was very cognizant about like, I didn't want them to see me completely losing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but there had to be cracks at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were definitely cracks. And there were times where they would come like, Mommy, are you okay? What can I do for you? You know, which, mm. of course, was like kind of heartbreaking. And Of course. Um, but, yeah, I think that issue of like parenting while you yourself are grieving, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I think I told you, Julia and I, so the younger one and I went to this grief group Mm. um, where I would go upstairs and talk to other 
adults who had lost someone and she was downstairs with kids who had lost a parent and like they would do art projects or like go on a trampoline or mm -hmm. whatever my older daughter was like there's no way i'm like making pipe cleaner figures about my dead mm -hmm. father with other kids like i'm just not yeah. doing this so she refused to go so i would drop her off somewhere every other monday or whenever we did this and take julia and um so that was really good um just to sort of you know know you're not alone mm -hmm. and also know that even though i wasn't sure about our finances and how things would go at the time i was only working part-time and the kids were in private school but and then so seth had life insurance but for a while it wasn't clear that they were going to pay it because it was he died by suicide mm. so i was worried about you know our finances and our stability for a while and then that ended up getting paid and i just saw how you know we got to stay in our house i got to continue to work part-time my kids got to stay in their cozy little private school that they'd been in since they were four yeah and i saw other families who didn't have that cushion and sure. it made a huge difference like they were in schools where the teachers were like this kid isn't participating so mm. i'm going to send them to the principal it's like mm. well maybe this kid isn't participating because they yeah. found their father dead in a river you know mm. um right so i just saw the ways that you know in our privileged lives that really can be a cushion mm -hmm. and and can you know make things so much better and eat you know yeah and i think the 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 important thing there is just the, it's so destabilizing to lose a parent that like the more things that can stay the same, at least in the first, you know, couple of years, the better. So yeah, to exactly. have lost a parent and then have to move or have to change schools right. or have to, you right. know, move in with somebody else, like all of that could just, um, yeah, just really exactly. adds to it. So exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I think it was, and also for Julia, she t said to me, it's i thought i was the only one that this happened to but it's really good to know that i'm not alone yeah so yeah, yeah and i think also finding the language to talk about it is what's so helpful about groups like that like someone else will say something and you're like oh yeah that is true for me too or you know right so many things can get kind of you can have all these aha moments listening to someone else right um right express their experience and yeah and also back to the issue of sort of what did i do to like soften the blow or help them mm. cope in that initial time i mean i just automatically thought that my kids would go right into therapy and they didn't want to and i was kind of like what well should i force them and i ultimately came to believe that you can't force people to go to therapy and like how weird is it for a you know an 11 year old to sit in a strange lady's office talking about her dead father like it's just no it's not something that either of my kids wanted to do for a very very long time after he died yeah um and even still um so but they did find their own stuff like julia had been doing gymnastics and she just got really deep into gymnastics like for her, the physical release was so important mm. and having a team and like having that be her identity and being good at something mm. like all those things are really sort of, I really dislike the word resilience, but like all of those things helped sort of build her up, mm -hmm. you know, and made her feel like she had something that she could feel good about, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and Sophia was a singer and she i saw how she would like pour her emotions into her singing and mm. um and like it was a way to fully express emotions without directly thinking about her own experience which was too much at the time absolutely like it was so clear and then they both ended up like writing um and performing pieces about their father but ones that, that they had written you know, mm. like last year, Julia took my wedding vows, the vows that I had written with Seth mm. and took pieces of them and constructed like a performance piece out of them. So it was really cool to see like, wow, 
you know, her deconstructing like parts of my wedding with her father and, and like it was mm. her in conversation with that. Mm. And so I think that's amazing. Like, yeah, that when kids can have, again, back to control, like when they can sort of orchestrate their own view of things yeah. um, without it being like thrust on them. I think that, I think that was really helpful for both of them. Yeah. Um, and I love that. that. Ex- yeah. I love that. I love both of those. I mean, I love that they're both, you know, finding ways to kind of reevaluate that story because ultimately yeah. when you're growing up, your whole, your origin story is your whole life. <laughs> your parents, right, exactly. where you live, your family, your home, that is everything. And so right. uh, when you lose a parent and everything kind of gets completely thrown off course from what you had understood, um, it takes years to kind of piece that all back together. And I think to do it creatively for yourself in a way that's expressive and you actually share it with other people, that's just beautiful. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very, um, that was really reinforcing for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be able to come to it in their own time. I mean, yeah. What I really learned through this process is that while I needed to talk about it directly, like with detail and really delve into sort of the psychology of it, they they couldn't face it directly, no. and nor should they have. Right. And it was just too, like it was just, like it was a language they weren't able to speak yeah. at the time. You know, all kids want is to feel safe and protected and loved, right? Yeah. And so you lose like a major source of that and you just think, how can they thrive and grow? But the truth is, you know, I was there, but in fact, Seth's parents were there. My parents were there for my mother in particular, you know, mm. their cousins, their school, like they had, we had an amazing community. Mm. But that, that saved us, Mm. you know, that really saved us, the community, Yeah, like my friends and, you know. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I think the way that communities kind of come in and hold a family after something like that. Um, And I'm glad to hear that you feel like it was sustained, you know, like a lot of times I think people feel like, oh, we get all this attention really quickly. And then it kind of people drift away. but right. and of course that does happen but if you have like core members that are really there for the long um the long haul of yeah we're going to help these kids grow up and we're going to help parent them we're going to be surrogate dads and whatever um the better you know all of that is so important yeah yeah, yeah. but i do feel like you something that's really coming across in this conversation and i I certainly have always seen this in our friendship too, but that closeness that you have with your kids, I feel like, you know, something that can happen with, with parents and kids who are all grieving is there can just be a lot of distance between those two experiences. And of course there was, but it just seems like you managed to stay really close with both your kids um, through those early months and years after Seth died. So, I mean, was do you think that's because of personalities or the way that you always parented them was there anything you did early on that you feel like made a difference in terms of that closeness i mean partly i was just lucky at who my kids were i mean yeah i don't you know i i just did what i did intuitively i mean you know, I think that if Seth had died and they were a little bit older, like if they were in the throes of adolescence, mm. um, it may have taken a different course. Like they may have just needed more distance. But because, I mean, Julia in particular, I mean, she was eight mm. and she just wanted like a parent. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship was kind of set on the course. Sophia was 11, like on the cusp of adolescence. So it was a little more like, as I said, I wasn't always sure what she was thinking. Mm -hmm. And there was more, 
like adolescent rebellion with her. Um, but I just, I feel like early on we became like this kind of unit and a friend of mine actually wrote me a condolence card that was like, you three move around like this attuned unit and you're like, you are attuned to them and you know, you just kind of like move together mm. through the world. Mm. And I really relate to that. I totally saw that at, when I came to that memorial three days after that was so clear. Um, you, they, even if they were across the room, it was like you had your, your laser focus was on each kid at all times. I really noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. I, mm. yeah, I didn't, I don't remember that moment, but like, mm. Yes. And, um, you know, it made me do some crazy stuff too. Like it made me, you know, when Julia wasn't invited to a birthday party <laughs> that all of her friends are invited to, I would like that first year I called the mother. I'm like, you're not inviting the kid who's lost her father to the, like, I totally guilt trip the mother into inviting her, you know, like I did some really embarrassing things. Like good for you. You know, so I was like a pain in the ass too, but, um, wow. but I rationalized it. Um, yeah, we just, we came together as a team and mm -hmm. I do think their ages were, you know, relevant to that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I do really think like having kids when I was older, like I had a clear idea of my priorities and, mm, um, yeah. you know, by that time, like I had, I was working part-time, like I made a conscious decision to be with them. And I mean, yeah. I, you know, I never totally left work. I always thought work was central and, you know, um, part of my identity, but, mm -hmm. um, I just thought like, I need to, I need to be here for them. And I wanted mm -hmm. to be, it wasn't like I was some big martyr too. Right. It wasn't, you know, because I still like, I went to yoga and I was able to continue to, you know, do stuff I loved. And I started dating like in a year, which mm. I'm, I think some people thought like, maybe that was too soon or whatever, but mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to be alone forever. You know, I thought yeah. I would, I thought I would be cause I was 50 when he died and I was like, okay, that's it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody like finds anybody when they're 50. Like I'm so not true, but then that worked <laughs> out too. Well, yeah. yeah. You're living proof. Um, yeah. So when you did remarried, you, you, your husband had his own kids, you made a blended family. Um, like how, did you navigate that through with your kids in terms of their grief and yeah um so moonji is my current husband's name mm. he's got one daughter who's about 6 months older than my oldest daughter okay. so i mean the fact that it was like three girls mm. i think was helpful the fact that they went to different schools so it wasn't like mm -hmm. weird and they had to explain stuff mm -hmm. that was that was helpful and just their personalities like my kids are like theater and singing and out loud and his kid is like an athlete and quieter and mm. so they weren't like their personalities weren't competing with each other yeah um so that was a lucky thing mm -hmm. and um we just did it really slowly mm. like we first moved in temporarily because I had a flood in my house and they had to do construction on my house. So at first we moved in, like, this is a temporary thing. We're not moving in with him. But in fact, it was kind of a trial run, mm -hmm. but like I slept in a separate room and, you know, we didn't move our stuff in, but we sort of checked it out. Mm -hmm. um, and then even when I did move in, which was probably like four years, after Seth died, mm -hmm. when we legitimately moved in, mm -hmm. um, even then I ke I kept my house. I couldn't bear to sell my house, mm -hmm. and actually Maria, the, our babysitter, ended up living there for a couple of years mm -hmm. just because, you know, in the back of my mind I was like, well, if this doesn't work out, we can always go home, right, you know? right. 
Um, and I think it was also like important to them that we still had that house, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like that was their house. Right. Like how much would you bring up Seth or how much would you encourage your kids to talk about him or to acknowledge him? Like, I don't know. How does that work in it? Oh yeah. We, we talk about him all the time. I mean, we have pictures of him in the house. I'm sitting next to like a big, huge cork board with pictures of all of us. Mm. And, um, I think that was a big part of it. Like we didn't have taboo against bringing him up. Yeah. Um, like we did, we had a party every year on his birthday with our friends who were there at the beginning Mm. and we celebrated him and like, on his birthday, we always did something special and, mm. you know, that's great. We, and then I wrote this book, which they've read and um, given consent to be named in. Mm. And, um, you know, so that was a whole nother layer of like getting back into that time. And I think they're kind of old enough to mm. deal with it more. Um, yeah. And I see them letting, I see them as they get older, even more able to face him and face what happened. Mm. Um, You know, and I have his laptop and it was only a couple of years ago where they were like, we want to see all the pictures on his laptop of Mm. us when we were little. Mm. Like that didn't happen the first year or the second year. It happened like the fourth or the fifth year, you know what I mean? Or even later. Yeah. Um, So all of that stuff is still here and I'm really glad I didn't get rid of it. Um, So as I said, I didn't sell my house and then ultimately I did have to sell my house because it was like sitting there in Cambridge and I was like, I could use this income. (laughs) Anyway, so we, we hadn't gone through his clothes. So right after he died, I, Maria, again, I was like, I can't deal with his clothes. So Maria just like put all of his clothes in garbage bags and put them in the basement. And so there they were for like years. And after five years, Mm. when we started, when we had to get rid of stuff to move, Sophia first was like, I want to go through his clothes. So she did. She went and she had had a sleepover with Maria at the house. And she went through the clothes and she was like, oh, my God, I got such great stuff. And it's so cool. (laughs) And like, I mean, she's a small, like all three, my kids and I are all like five feet tall. So I I didn't understand how his jeans, she was wearing them. But she's like, I've got belts and it's really cool. Anyway, and then Mm. Julia was at camp that summer and she came and she's like, I want to go through the clothes, too. So she went through the clothes and they, they came back with like all of these clothes of his and we they ended up like getting into the clothing rotation. So I would just like see them wearing his clothes and it was like Mm. so weird and kind of scary, haunted, ghost-like, but Mm. actually really cool because they would like wear his t-shirts as nightgowns or they would like cut his t-shirts and wear them with mini skirts or- Yeah, I totally relate to wearing the clothes, my, I still have a couple of my dad's sweaters and I love to put them on when like, Mm. I'm feeling kind of, you know, like I just want my dad's energy around me. And it's so nice to be able to throw on one of those things and just, you know, hang out. So yeah, I'm glad they have that. Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know how conscious it is with them. Like, I think sometimes it is, you know, Mm -hmm. and then other times, like there have been times where they have a friend over and the friend wants to borrow an, you know, a jacket and they'll pull out one of Seth's jackets and we'll all just kind of like take a breath. And then it's, so it's like the, the clothes have this sort of life of their own depending on the context, but yeah, it's pretty cool that they, they do live on. I really do feel that. And it's a great metaphor for how their relationship with their deceased dad is going to continue to grow and evolve throughout their lifetimes, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like my relationship with my mom has only gotten stronger over time. So Mm. it hasn't, it hasn't faded away, you know, not even close. So yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it evolves in ways you can't even imagine. Yeah, exactly. 
So, well, Rachel, this has been awesome. I have really enjoyed hearing the whole story. And I guess because you've written about it, it's just so clear and yeah, it's been really great to talk to you. I, I do write about it a lot. I don't sort of respond to questions about it a lot. Mm. So this feels really fresh actually. Mm. And I appreciate that you asked me to do this. Oh, cool. It makes, makes me think in different ways to talk about it than compared to writing about it. Right. So, so thank you. And what about the book? Like when is that coming out? Oh yeah. So the book, um, it's called us after a memoir of love and suicide. Mm. Um, so it's coming out next year, June of 2024. And I'll, you know, be updating my website, okay. which people can find. Yeah. So where can people find you? Um, my website is rachelzimmerman.net. Okay, great. And I'll have that in the show notes in case anyone wants to look in there. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you like the show, please share it widely. I'm, as you know, trying to grow this show um, and I'm getting so much great feedback, but I would love more people to get to hear it. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, I want to thank Josephine Wiggs for the music. It's from her album, We Fall.